0: The war in Ukraine, runaway inflation, COVID lockdowns, Liz Truss—if you blinked, missed that one. It was a year of market instability and uncertainty. To put it all in perspective, Dave Wallace chats it through with Cavendish, Wears, Adrian, Ware, and Lance Pelts here, on Baseline. From the studios of NMD Plus comes Baseline. baseline, brought to you by Cavendish Wear, a UK-based boutique wealth management firm that provides truly bespoke advice. Cavendishware, Ware, wealth for life. And now is your host, Dave Wallace.
1: Welcome to today's show. And today we've got Adrian and Lance and we're going to be reflecting on 2022. So Adrian Lance, to get us started, what are your highlights or perhaps lowlights of the year? I mean, it's been a pretty, pretty turbulent year. I think I would describe it as a bit of an anus maribilis. So yeah, I mean, if you could kind of just start with your highlights or lowlights, that would be fantastic.
0: Well, I mean, it's been a very interesting year, as the Chinese would say. (laughs) All years are interesting years, aren't they? But this one has been quite spectacular. I think as we went into the year, we couldn't see what actually was going to unfold. Some of what we could, I mean, we were talking about inflation in the middle of 21. There was definitely inflation was very much on our radar and we started to make adjustments in the portfolios accordingly. But I don't think on the 1st of January that we had Certainly a strong inkling that there was going to be a proper conflict between Russia and Ukraine.
1: You're right. I mean, I think up until the day before, Mm. everybody thought, other than the US intelligence, that that just wasn't going to happen. So, yeah, you're right. Something I'd completely forgotten about that actually it's only since February.
0: That was the real seismic change that started to affect so many other things. So we've had that to contend with and all the implications of that. Obviously that's included, you know, we now talk about the cost of living crisis, which has kind of hit the lexicon for the last few months. And it's a real thing. It's affecting a lot of people very badly. And then of course we had the whole political turmoil. Well, we'll,
1: we'll dig into that a bit later. Lance, <laughs> what are some of your key highlight or low light? I'm very conscious this
2: is purely investment. And in the real world, some of what we're seeing affects people quite badly. But from an investment point of view, the highlights are the bad things because the challenge we had in, let's say, 21 was that there were obvious dislocations and places of overvaluation, if not bubbles, that just persisted. So, Whilst we didn't expect the war in Ukraine, and like Adrian said, right up to the day, we thought, or certainly the investment community thought the US were over-egging the pudding just like they'd done in Iraq. And also, having invested through two Gulf Wars, the lesson from those was that actually they're just blips. You should ignore them. It's noise. But our theme, our thoughts were that And Adrian mentioned a seismic change, but the world's been undergoing quite a significant change for the few years prior to that, moving from a low disinflationary regime to a structurally more inflationary regime, even before Ukraine. And the illustration I use is like squeezing a tube of toothpaste. Once it comes out, it's really difficult to put it back into the tube. And if we just extrapolate that further, the war between Russia and Ukraine was somebody actually stamping hard on that tube of toothpaste. So energy prices and food prices and all sorts of other secondary effects. It became, nobody knew, other than the chip industry, that Ukraine's the world's major producer of an inert gas that is absolutely critical for chip production. It's all those things that we don't think about on a day-to-day basis that have their ramifications.
0: I had to think there for a second to make sure it wasn't the chips that went with fish, but I'm (laughs) with you now. yeah. Yeah, microchips. Exactly. So. For us, or certainly from
2: the investment side of things, a number of chickens came home to roost, and most notably in the bond market. people talk a lot about volatility and actually we've had a very benign bear market in equities, very orderly bear market. It's bond markets that have suffered materially over this year. And it was an area where we've been underweight, very nervous of. Describe bonds to our clients as return-free risk. And we've been very underweight. And over this year, there's been a significant repricing of bonds. From a point, I would say 18 months ago, I think there were $13 trillion worth. That's trillion dollars. I can't even count the zeros of government bonds that had negative yields. In other words, you paid the government to hold their bonds. To now there are none. So our clients are now being paid to hold bonds. And that's been, I think, the seismic change of twenty-two.
0: It's amazing how quickly our mindset changed. I went on holiday a few months ago to South America and there everybody's still wearing masks. And i would completely forgotten about wearing masks. So, you know, the human brain does change very quickly on these things. But we still haven't recovered from COVID. And COVID, the supply chain issues that that created and the change in the way that the world operated and had to operate, is still being affected. And then you throw in a Ukraine-Russia crisis and all the knock-on effects to that. And it just exacerbated and multiplied what was already looking difficult.
1: That's really interesting. That whole thing around the changing patterns. And as you say, the whole pressure on the supply chain is fascinating. I guess in the UK, I mean, we've also had the impact of the dreaded Brexit word, which has kind of come as well. But is that going to have an impact on the UK in terms of near shoring? Because I guess the UK sort of moved away from being a manufacturing based economy, but it sounds like there might be opportunities to return to more manufacturing going forward.
2: I don't know. I mean, the impact of Brexit in terms of you know increasing the frictions with our largest trading bloc and neighbor are only compounding. This there's been a lot discussed by economists about the UK productivity problem. And actually it's sometimes economists are too clever. It's it's patently obvious. Why would you buy a fancy machine when you can employ cheap labour from Eastern Europe? And that goes whether it's a crop picking machine, a car washing machine, or Your efficiencies in service industries such as restaurants. And that's been now a major challenge. That's why we are seeing, along with the propensity for the UK to strike, all this labor unrest in the UK. It is difficult to fill open positions. And that's absolutely influenced by the availability of labor from
0: Europe. I think it filters up the whole way through the chain. And so this has got nothing to do with. Brexit and migration and all that sort of stuff. But you know, in our sector of the market, we've grown quite a lot as a business. We've been looking to recruit people over this year. And we have recruited, we've been lucky, we've recruited quite a lot. But the market is incredibly difficult. And I'm a member of a think tank group of peers. We sit down every month and share sort of stories and what's going on among sort of the leading wealth firms in and around London. And everybody's in the same boat. We haven't been able to find Easily good quality staff because they're just not there. And that goes to all the professional services, accountancy firms, solicitor firms that we deal with are all saying the same thing. Whether that's, you know, the great retirement, whether that is a shift in what people want, there's a lot of things in play here, but it's creating issues. I think that I'm not sure we're feeling those issues yet. And therefore looking forward, I think the next 12 months continue to be a very bumpy ride. I think
1: I want to come back to the trussonomics and what happened there Mm. but let's just picking up that point is you know looking forward into 2023 you know if china starts using a lot more oil and from everything i've read you think 2022 was bad 2023 is going to be on a different scale i mean what are your thoughts on that
2: yes and no can i sit on the fence on this one
1: (laughs) yeah of course (laughs) I want someone to tell me some good news about next year, you know
2: see so. It's absolutely clear that inflation has rolled over. and in fact, this morning we yeah. got the UK data and yesterday we got the US data, both came in lower than previous prints. So the rate of inflation is declining, and it's declining faster than the market expectations. That's the good news. And it's to be expected. And there's some really interesting stats. In that, I mean, something that leapt out. So, used car price inflation in March this year was running at thirty-one and a half percent. In other words, used cars were appreciating. The pendulum swung. Everybody who was going to buy a car, etc., has done so. We're now seeing depreciation of five point eight percent. So that's how stuff does correct itself. And we've seen oil prices. We're all very, very cognizant of the petrol price, and that's come down. Should it? Looking at the Sterling price of oil. Pump prices should be lower, but that's another story entirely. But nevertheless, petrol prices are coming down. And that's a lot to do with supply substitution from other countries. But you're absolutely right. It also reflects that China this year has been heavily constrained by lockdown. And China is now rowing back on that. As far as we can see from the reports, a rather chaotic fashion. But a few months from now, they will have got past the surge in cases and all the regional differences. And yes, China could be consuming much more of the world's commodities back to the level that they were, say, in 2019. So the good news on inflation for next year, which means that if inflation does slow, the rate of inflation does slow, we can see an end to the interest rate rising cycle and maybe a plateau in rates could come under threat. So that's the challenge about China reopening. On the other hand, Asian equity markets look really cheap to me, and it's an area we're going to be thinking about. So if the issue of China being a dead weight on the region is removed, Asia could now be an interesting investment opportunity. So there's always you know the pros and cons of every uh, story. So I'm sitting on the fence.
1: My work is sort of web-related IT been very interesting to see Asia and the Middle East, just how much energy there is around new platforms and digital. And I guess you look at the US, UK, they're going to write them off, but it doesn't feel like there's the same energy there. So it will be fascinating to see what happens across Asia as China reawakens after these lockdowns. Let's turn to the trussonomics question because I think Lance and I had a chat and thanks to Liz Truss I discovered what LDI was and I think it's something I should never have delved into but yeah so I mean that was a really interesting moment in time and I guess the ramifications of that are still being felt. What happened again? I guess we all understand that she came along and her budget basically had a massive impact on the market but what were the critical things that happened? Some of the things that we're sort of still dealing with now?
0: It was a really interesting period. The day that the mini budget was announced, I was sitting on a plane waiting to go on a long overdue holiday from 2020. And I was actually away for three weeks. Seeing it all unfold from halfway around the world. And also I was on the phone to Lance in the office throughout much of that time, which is a bit of annoying. But there we are. It's what happens. It was quite bizarre. We always steer way clear of politics it's not our place Man, and you know we have clients that sit across the political map and quite rightly so. But from my perspective looking at the time as I said from halfway around the world you had two people who were very much on the same page who had been itching to put in place almost an academic philosophy and they were basically taking it out of a textbook is the way that I can see it. If you believe in supply side economics, and I'm not sure that it's ever been proved to be right, but some people believe it, some people don't, it can surely only work where you have a relatively benign environment to allow it to take hold in the economy. It is not the answer to a crisis, and this was a crisis. It was quite a bizarre approach, the biggest pivotal moment was the Bank of England stepping in and doing what they did and what they had to do. It just became so untenable so quickly. I've never seen anything unfold so fast. Everything was changed. We all know what happened, but the effects of that, even those three weeks has meant that, you know, inflation will be higher for longer. Interest rates will be higher for longer in its cost thing. Now, Lance is shaking his head here, which is great because we have a lot of debate.
1: yeah lancor is a great idea what liz
2: (laughs) liz trust unwittingly did a very interesting economic experiment i mean for many years governments certainly in developed countries have been running increasing deficits and have been able to get away with it with ever declining bond yields because normally what happens if you run a deficit you have to issue more bonds the price of your bonds collapses or your currency collapses until overseas investors find that your bond's more attractive to buy. That hasn't happened because central banks, under the guise of QE, have basically printing money and buying as many bonds as the government will issue. And in the UK, as much as the governor will swear till he's blind, till he's red in the face that it's not the case, the amount of QE very much matches the amount of the increase in in the deficit. Trust tried a very interesting experiment, which is, If you totally forget about, and I use these words carefully, pretending to balance the budget at some vague point in the future, in a small country where overseas investors have already lost interest in your country, and that's what's happened to the UK post Brexit, and your central bank is no longer printing money and buying bonds, what does happen to your bond market? Well, it craters, which is what happened to Gilts. And then that caused the LDI problem. I mean, it gave us a great buying opportunity for our clients, and we haven't held the gilt funds for ages, and we bought gilts and actually bought some more U.S. government bonds as well. But in terms of what it's meant for the bond markets, is it's actually been a huge signal that actually the old way, the last two decades of you can ever-increasing deficits funded by central bank printing is no longer a path to go down. And I think it's the high watermark for government bond yields. I think one of the great beneficiaries is actually Italy because the new Italian prime minister was probably contemplating the same kind of approach that was going on in the UK and clearly didn't need to try that experiment. Somebody did it for her. But in the long run, so here's a glimmer of light. Post-Hunt-Sunak budget, which is much more about fiscal responsibility and trying to balance books, the UK could actually be in a relatively better path than the US, which is still running large deficit and has no plans to reduce that deficit, or even the Eurozone, where the conundrum of the Italian deficit versus the German balance sheet still hasn't been resolved. So it may in the long run mean that we're actually in a better position, but it also means that everywhere we're going to suffer a higher tax burden, and there's no escaping that.
1: Good to hear that there is a glimmer of light which has kind of come out of this. One of the things I wanted to ask about was the fact that here we are at the end of 2022 and actually the stock market, I mean, at one moment in time, it was, we kind of had a massive drop. There's been a lot of volatility across 2022, but what's going on now? You know, why is the stock market in the place which it is, do you think?
2: It's very much in the short run. The market is driven by that balance between hope and fear, the ebb and flow of money. We've had soft inflation data. Certainly, the first good print was in the US now four or five weeks ago. And the market is discounting what, in the parlance, is the Fed pivot and the soft landing. Right. So let's just quickly touch about soft landing. Everybody is expecting recession next year in many countries and all the debate is about the length and depth of the recession. So we come out with lots of jargon, soft landing, hard landing, long and slow, and so on. Frankly, it reminds me of the obsession we had in the depths of COVID about what shape the COVID recovery would be. Do you remember we were all going on about letters of the alphabet, V, W, Nike swoosh, etc. It just reflects the market's blinkered obsession about one or two points. So, the expectation that inflation has rolled over and that we now see a peak in central bank rates. Actually, the reality is we're probably more likely to get a plateau and markets are probably getting ahead of themselves. So, most of the market fall this year has actually been about valuation. So, the multiple that investors will pay for a company's future earnings has come down. Whereas We think the real risk next year is actually about the earnings. It doesn't take rocket science to see that companies' costs are going up. Top line is beginning to feel pressure from cost of living crisis. Employees are uniformly asking for wage increases. It does lead to a squeeze on margins. So we think the topic next year will be earnings disappointments rather than interest rate rises. Right. So that's the downside risk. And then what we've seen, particularly in the U.S., could turn out to be just a bear market rally. But there's always a flip side to the coin. And we could actually have a very modest recession in the U.S. And investors could actually look through that earnings dip. So there's more of a balance now at the end of 22 about where the markets will go, certainly in our minds, than at the beginning of this year where it was clear that markets were expensive interest rates were going to go up volume of money was going to go down and it was quite clear for us at the beginning of this year that markets were definitely going to end lower than they started it's not so clear now markets are definitely not expensive they're not cheap but they're definitely not expensive and we are very much focused on valuation and earnings whereas macro is kind of unpredictable and the background noise
0: is still going to be very much a trend. We're still going to see a lot of ups and downs. And, you know, I was saying to somebody the other day that sort of, you know, I think part of the reason that the market recovered in the way that it has is because we've got into this habit of the market has got into this habit of thinking that the news today isn't quite as bad as the news yesterday. And without necessarily having a vision on what's going to happen in the future. So you create this sort of momentum approach and then all of a sudden you wake up and go oh actually maybe it's not so good so i think we see it going to be full of ups and downs but yeah i agree i mean we you know went into the year very underweight equities and bonds holding a lot of cash we still hold a lot of cash we've taken advantage of the trustnomics if you call it to actually increase our exposure to bonds both through quantum and duration um we're still underweight equities but we're looking at where there are opportunities there as well. And that cash, we're holding that cash so that we can deploy it to take advantage because there will be opportunities coming. So it's not all bad news. And we're playing the long game here. And we should always play the long game. But if we can see places where we can sort of, you know take some advantage, fantastic. So... We've held up well over this year. We're very proud of how the portfolios have performed relative to the market and our peers. You've got to be very careful. You don't pat yourself on the back too clever or too hard in these sort of market conditions because you never know what's going to happen. But I think we feel we're well positioned and as things unfold next year, there will be opportunities to buy in at price points that will be quite interesting.
1: Fantastic. So just to sort of finish off, Adrian, how's the year been for Cavendish Where You talked about briefing people and yeah, uh, any plans for next year we
0: started a lot of work internally in 2020 actually sort of in COVID. we had various plans as a business so as a firm yeah we've had seen a lot of change a lot of the stuff that we're looking at and talking about we've put into operation this year so we now have been able to offer clients of ours a discretionary offering which a lot have taken advantage of which is great in doing that, we have the opportunity to use a sort of different platform for holding the investments, which is real improvement, both in terms of quality and price, and is future-proofing, again, what we're trying to do. We're going through a massive change at the moment with regard to our back office system, which hopefully clients won't see. There's no reason why they will, but that's a big change for us. And as part of that, yeah, we've expanded. We've grown. We've taken on eight new members of staff this year, which wow. is quite significant, despite the backdrop of a difficult job market. So we feel as a company in a good place. We've got some great staff now, and I think we're very positive about the future. We're a financial planning-led firm. I mean, we spend a lot of time talking about investments and all that But what we found is that all of our work is referral work. All of the clients that come to us come because they are recommended to us. And we've taken on a lot of lovely new clients this year. Because there is a need. And I think what we're doing is increasingly important in very uncertain times. So, you know, I'm very positive about where we are as a business and where we're going in the future. But we do live in very difficult times. You've got to be very careful, haven't you? You know, I'm very aware of people who are struggling and people who are having a difficult time, both personally or in businesses or whatever. And whether it's been COVID or, you know, cost of living crisis or whatever it is. So I think we always have to be very mindful of the facts. you know, that we live in a very safe environment. We live in a country that has a rule of law. We could be living in Kiev being bombed. So let's put life in perspective and try and find the positives.
1: For me, actually, I've loved being part of this podcast and listening to you. Hearing from the horse's mouth around what's kind of going on has been fantastic. So I'm really thankful for you both in terms of the clarity that you've brought in terms of what's going on as a client.
0: Well, and flip side to you, Dave. So this is obviously our first foray into the wild and wacky world of podcasts. And it's been great having you here and holding our hand through it all. So many thanks to you as well. So
1: Fantastic. Well, here we are just before Christmas. I think this is going to go out after Christmas, but happy Christmas to you both. And thank you again.
0: Lovely. Thank you very much. Bye. Thanks for tuning into Baseline, a monthly podcast
1: series dedicated to topics that matter in world management. Be sure to check out our podcast archive on SoundCloud. And until next time, have a marvellous week.
0: You have been listening to Baseline from Cavendish Ware, an NMD Plus production.